his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Incidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Welcome to Special Edition. A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we're going to find out about recognizing the signs for suicide. We're also going to hear about keeping teeth healthy, especially for older Americans. Some Halloween reminders coming up and a Halloween murder mystery you won't want to miss. We're going to start off, though, by introducing you to Dr. Yolanda Graham. She is a Devereaux Senior Vice President and the Chief Clinical Medical Officer. Dr. Graham specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry with a focus on sex trafficking in children. And that is our topic today. Dr. Graham, welcome. Once again, a pleasure to have you here with us. And now today we're going to talk about something that is, I don't think, talked about enough at all. And that is sex trafficking. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of exactly when we say that, what that means? Sure, Paula. So I, as a child psychiatrist, specialize in childhood sex trafficking. And when we talk about sex trafficking of kids, it really refers to anyone under the age of 18 where um, a a sexual, a commercial sexual act is used to exploit the child and in exchange for something of value. And that can be money, drugs, a place to stay, um, protection. And so it's the exchange of anything of value with the child um, for the purpose of a sexual act, which could include sexual intercourse, pornography, escort services, a wide range of activities that would be considered under exploitation. And I guess when, again, when you're talking about something like this, it's something that people think it can't happen to me. So is that correct? Is that something that they don't even realize? That is totally incorrect, Paula. And what we've learned when we look at Who's at risk? I've been doing this work for over 20 years. And when I first started um, working with youth that had been sexually exploited, we were primarily seeing kids that were um, inner city, um, low-income neighborhoods. That really changed with the face of sex trafficking of kids moving towards more recruitment occurring over the Internet rather than in person we saw the demographics of the population really change where we're now seeing kids that live in your neighborhood and my neighborhood, kids from middle school and up who are being recruited for sex trafficking. And so what we know now is that all kids are at risk. If you have access to a smartphone, to a computer, and to the internet, then you're at risk of being sex trafficked. And wasn't it also the again, the misconception that it was only children from other countries and countries that were even in more poverty situations? I think you're right. When we first started looking at sex trafficking, we really thought this was a third world country problem. And certainly we sex trafficking of children has been documented in over 161 countries. What we didn't realize 20, 25 years ago was how prevalent sex trafficking was in the United States. 
Um, every year in the United States, according to Shared Hope International, over 300,000 kids are trafficked within our borders domestically to the point where we actually, we use two terms when we talk about sex trafficking. One is commercial sexual exploitation of children, which is more of a clinical term. And the other is domestic minor sex trafficking, which really is a federal term that refers to youth that are trafficked within the borders of the United States. And we have seen this problem in every state. There have been many campaigns, um, some called In Your Own Backyard, really to raise awareness that this is not an inner city problem. This is not a their problem. This is an our problem. It's occurring in our neighborhoods. It's occurring in our schools, in our communities. And we have to be aware in order to recognize the problem and address it. Does, well, I know when you're saying sex trafficking, but when it comes to child trafficking, does it always have to be about sex? Can it be also about domestic, uh, you know, almost slavery? Yes, uh, labor trafficking is also a huge issue within the United States. And, you know, the demographics are somewhat different. We do see more kids that are, brought in from other countries for the purposes of labor trafficking. Um, but the, the incidence of sex trafficking for immigrants is really high as well as we look at you know, who's at risk, who are the kids that we're seeing the most. And those are kids who um, live with addiction, who live in poverty. It includes kids who have immigrated or migrated to this country. They're at risk for both sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking youth with a history of early childhood sexual and physical abuse, um, youth with a history of runaway, LGBTQ youth, and any youth with a history of past or present involvement with the child welfare system. And so while we see these demographics shift over time, we know that these are the highest risk factors. And those same risk factors are risk factors for sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking. Let's talk a little bit about the traffickers, the people who are involved in doing this. How how does all that work? Wow. So there, there are different forms of recruitment and different forms of sex trafficking of And um, so I'll talk about those. There are four major types. There's the pent-controlled type of sex trafficking, and we see this occur most commonly with younger girls. Um, almost 100% are under the control of a pimp as their form of trafficking. There's gang control trafficking. Um, there's buyer control trafficking, and this is when the buyer themselves exploit the child without an intermediary, um, such as a pimp or a sex trafficker. And we see this most commonly in, in younger boys who are being trafficked. And then there's family-controlled um, sex trafficking abuse. And surprisingly, we saw an increase in family-controlled sex trafficking um, during the opioid um, endemic and also during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Polaris Project, which is a group that really works on sex trafficking of kids on the national level, reported that um, 42% of their victims during the pandemic were recruited by a family member, which included 39% by an intimate partner. And this really represents a significant shift over the years. For the most part, when we're looking at girls that are trafficked, we're looking at pimp control. And for boys that are trafficked, we're looking at buyer control trafficking. So how would you know? looking at it from the outside, that something like that is actually happening where you are? Well, there there are many red flags that people can be aware of that may signal that a youth is in trouble. Um, One, if you have a youth that's involved in controlling or abusive relationships, especially if the person they're dating is significantly older than they are, and controlling of who they talk to, who they see, what they do. Um, youth that have don't have access to any 
important documents that identify themselves at any time, um, signs that the youth may be malnourished or abuse of physical marks that may be on the body because physical abuse is um, a common method of control in, in sex trafficking. Uh, tattoos or branding. You know, this is very common. Unfortunately, pimps brand children similarly to, you know, farmers who brand cattle. And they brand them in the form of an actual brand or a tattoo as a symbol of ownership. And so asking questions about tattoos or any brand. Um, if there's a personal family history of sex trafficking, we definitely have seen an increased incidence within families. A youth who's a chronic runaway, um, frequent absences from school, changes in their appearance, mood, or their behavior, youth who are isolated from their family and friends, or youth who um, suddenly have unexpected amounts of money, you know, large amount of money or are able to make, make large purchases. Those are all kind of red flags that we look for in this population. And again, when we're talking, we're talking children. So we're talking under the age of 18 where they would normally be going to school. So would, would they be going to school or would they be kept back and not allowed out to be with other people? Um, generally, once a child is under a pimp's control, they are kept away from anything or anyone that is familiar with them. And that is one of the methods of control is isolation. So they would not be going to school. So these would be youth who have frequent or extended absences from school. And so they may be missing for three months. And what happens is if they're rescued and they're brought home, then they may return to school. But you would begin to see um, absences related to runaway as well. You know, one of the greatest risk factors is runaway. And it's estimated that 1.6 million kids in this country run away any given year. And what we know is that within 72 hours of running away, a child is going to be approached to be sex trafficked, which is just uh, astonishing. So within 72 hours of running away, you know, a child has to support themselves while they're on the street. And there are only so many ways that you have to support themselves. So Usually there's someone, um, there's a, a, we call them a victim exploiter, but usually another child their age, a teenager, who serves as a recruiter. And they go to malls and to bus stops and train stations and team centers, and they befriend kids who look like they have nowhere else to go. And they offer them, you know, an opportunity to go party with them, a place to stay, maybe drugs. Um, but they offer them something of value, you know, and these kids are easily identified, Paula. Um, if you're sitting in a food court for three hours and by yourself, then that's probably not a normal kind of mall outing, right? And so these recruiters, I, uh, they really recruit the kids in public places and then eventually bring them to the pimp who then begins to exploit them using... Um, we often refer to it as a power and control will. And so the pimp will often befriend the child, maybe shower them with things of value, um, treat them as if they're a girlfriend, learn everything about them so that they can um, manipulate their self-esteem and really present as a boyfriend. And so the girls often think they're in a relationship, but that soon changes into something of violence where pimps use emotional violence physical violence, sexual violence, you know, purposeful manipulation. I've already talked about the isolation, um, coercion and threat, and, and, and really create an economic dependence. They, um, you know, help these youth get addicted to drugs as a way to keep them under their control and then create this perception that the kids owe them for shelter, for drugs, for food. And so there's this interdependency that's created that keeps the child in bondage. And I think, again, um, any of our listeners who may be hearing you talk about this today say, oh, that must be terrible to be 
in a border town where you're, you know, so close to another country or in a big city. Well, do things like that happen here in Pennsylvania? They absolutely happen here in Pennsylvania. And there have been sting operations that have been reported in the suburban counties of of, of Philadelphia um, and central Pennsylvania where sex trafficking is occurring. It absolutely occurs. And I think the most disheartening thing that occurs is when people close their eyes and um, and allow themselves to pretend that this is an other problem because it is really happening to kids all over the state. So what and can I think we- that's, no, you're going to ask, what can we do? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, every state, there's, a, there's an interesting project that's done by Sherrick Hope International where they issue state report cards for each state that looks at how does this state fare in terms of the laws that are in the state to protect victims of sex trafficking, um, the services that are available in the state, and prevention and education activities, because that's really what we're talking about, and that's what we're doing here, Paula. We're educating people so that they can become aware so that they can support legislative actions, but also support, you know, prevention in their neighborhoods. Well, in 2021, unfortunately, Pennsylvania scored an F on this report card. So we obviously have a lot of work to do in the state. We've done extremely well in Pennsylvania in passing laws that hold buyers and traffickers accountable. When I started this work 20 years ago, you know, trafficking of kids was a misdemeanor. You know, it's now a felony felony with mandatory, you know, sentencing. Um, We also scored an A in criminal provisions and having tools that really address a victim-centered criminal response because often youth who are picked up um, as victims of sex trafficking, they're treated like criminals. And so it's important that we treat them as the victims that they are. No child can consent to be sexually exploited. Right, it is illegal, and so we have to make sure that we're treating them as victims. The, the areas where Pennsylvania could definitely do better, um, and where we scored an F in almost every other area, was identifying and responding to victims. Which this has to do with educating our police department, our social services agencies. We now see that over 85% of kids that are being sex trafficked have had some involvement with child welfare. So we know these kids are especially at risk and especially vulnerable. And most of them have had contact with a pediatrician or the child welfare or juvenile justice system within the three-month period of which they may have been sex trafficked. So it's important that social service agencies, that the public, that pediatricians are really aware of how to identify and respond to victims. We also um, lack a continuum of care in our state, and uh, we score very poorly in having prevention and training resources available. So as I said, Paula, there's a lot of work that can be done. There are some agencies here in Pennsylvania that are doing that work, but we certainly see a need for increased services. Uh, What has happened historically is that if a child was found on the streets, they may be arrested, placed in juvenile detention, and charged with a status offense, um, such as runaway or loitering. What we found is that that is not a victim-centered response. And so we've come a long way with not incarcerating these kids that have been traumatized, but we haven't come very far with creating the services for them in the community which is why for myself as a psychiatrist, it's extremely important that we focus on the service provision aspect. And at Devro, of course, we're national. We're in 13 states, and we have resources for youth who have been sex trafficked in four of those states, including Pennsylvania, at our um, Pennsylvania Children's Services Center in Glenmore. And that center provides residential services for kids who are at risk or who have been sex trafficked, as well as outpatient services. But we really need a continuum within the state. We can't have just one provider. I'm really proud that we're meeting that need 
but we need others to join and collaborate with us around this. And if someone hearing this has a suspicion now, because you've mentioned things that might be making sense after they haven't, what would they do? Well, in Pennsylvania, they should call the child line, and that number is 1-800-932-0313. Again, that's 1-800-932-0313. And they should call this line if they suspect sex or labor trafficking of children. And you don't have to have proof, just a suspicion. There's also a national hotline which is the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline. It provides 24-7 support, and that number is 1-888-373-7888. Again, 1-888-373-7888. Dr. Graham, anything else that you think we may have left out or that you would like to add or reiterate? Because this, again, it's such a topic that... Many people don't want to talk about it. Right. What, what I'd encourage our listeners to really think about is you know, monitor your child's um, social media contact and their online presence. Um, we found that during the pandemic, recruitment for sex trafficking of kids increased 22%, and that included a 125% increase on Facebook and a 95% increase on Instagram. So in the past, we looked at there were recruitment sites like Craigslist or Backpage, but now traffickers are blatantly recruiting in the public eye. And so monitor your child's use of the internet. Also, um, talk to them frequently about their friends. So stay involved. Look for these changes. Don't think that couldn't happen to me. Be aware, not only for your child, but also friends of your child. of your child. And so I think it takes all of us being responsible community members to protect the kids in our community. Thanks once again to Dr. Yolanda Graham for joining us. She is the Devereaux Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Medical Officer specializing in child and adult psychiatry with a focus on sex trafficking in children. Coming up next, we're getting ready for Halloween on Special Edition. Coming up next on Special Edition, we'll be getting tips on Halloween safety and hearing about a Halloween murder mystery that you won't want to miss. Kathy Ristroch is here and she has all the details. Kathy's here and that means that there is a wonderful show coming up and just in time for Halloween, it's a murder mystery and it's going to be where? Uh, Well, this is a combination. This is Actors Circle presenting it, but we're at the Rossetti Estate under the Rossetti Foundation of Arts and Culture, and that's at 1005 Vine Street, which is the corner of Vine and Quincy in Scranton, right by the University of Scranton. So it's a murder mystery. That means that the audience gets to be involved? Well, they're there. They don't get to pick who did it, (laughs) but uh, it's a Halloween party and we want everybody that comes to come dressed. If they don't want to come dressed, maybe bring a mask to wear or something. Not a COVID mask, just a (laughs) a Halloween mask. And uh, we'll be as the actors, we're going to be in, in our in our personality as people are coming in and, you know, and ad living with the, with the people until the actual show itself, you know, that's written begins. Oh, okay. And I know you can't give us all of the information, but what's the, uh, what's the premise of all this? Oh, the premise is that the, this, this millionaire uh, died and he was, he's giving out money to four people to be divvied up among us. And the lawyer is involved in passing it out. And so we're there at this party you know, with that in mind. And things happen, put it that way. I don't want to put the whole story out there. Oh, no, no. We, we want to come in now and see because, and you're part of this? Who else is part of oh, this? Oh, yeah. I'm directing. I'm also in the show. And John McInerney, he wrote this. It's Murder at the Manor House. 
And uh, other members of my cast are Brian Reese. Now, he has a special part. He's, he's uh, Sam Spade, who ends up being a detective. So I, that I, won't, I could give away easily. Um, and uh, Britt Deming, Deming, she plays his assistant, Eve Ballard. And then the other people in it, there is uh, uh, Jesse Teven. She's in it, Mark Fryer. Uh, myself, Justin O'Hearn, Eric Lutz, and then Jeff Ginsburg. He is going to be in character as the butler who is maintaining the people coming in, taking taking track of whoever comes in and you know taking their payments and being the butler at large, along with Bernie Ott. He, he offered to help as well. So it's going to be a fun night. And this is a place that is owned now by Kenny Hussing. And uh, he's got, you know, this would be a great thing to continue the the uh, thing that the Rossetti estate was doing under uh, Father Mark uh, Rossetti. Uh, he would bring people in and he'd offer food and drinks and we would put on a show and get paid. Uh, you know, the proceeds would go towards our organization. In this case, this is going towards Actor Circle. And while we don't offer the, the the wine or you know alcohol at our premise now people are are obliged to uh bring their own and we will help serve it for them but we will have hors d'oeuvres and other soft drinks that's what i was going to say and all of this is in tick is included in the ticket price right 25 dollars which uh you could pay at the door i need the reservations though so you must call my number or go to the Rossetti Arts uh, website. But if it's it's easier if you call me, I think. Call my number and talk to me, and I'll make sure you're all taken care of properly. And you can bring your money at the door, and we'll have a reservation, because it is limited seating. And my number is 570-351-6842. Do you have a deadline? October 24. And when and is this, this show is this is Saturday the 29th at 6 p.m. we start and it should be over about 9:30 we could figure. And we can find out more information by visiting rosettiarts.org. Correct. All right, Kathy. Hold on to your well, I don't know what you should hold on to. I just hope that <laughs> I hope you get out alive. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks Kathy, and no matter what you're doing this Halloween, safety is most important. Rebecca Ryback is here. She's the coordinator of the Northeast Highway Safety Program. So believe it or not, Halloween is one of the higher uh, holidays that have uh, an increase of impaired driving and impaired driving crashes and fatalities. Now this year, Halloween is on a Monday night. So a lot of people are going to be celebrating all weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So if you are in the bars, um, if you are walking anywhere, you want to make sure that you are in a group. You want to make sure that you have a plan. You have a sober driver with you. If you don't have a Lyft, an Uber, um, someone that can drive you to point A from point B. Again, if you are walking, you want to make sure that you are, you know, together, that you don't not have any impairment with you. You want to make sure that you know your surroundings and know where you're at. And you just want to have a safe and happy Halloween that doesn't include, you know, getting behind the wheel impaired. And speaking of Halloween and being out, there are a lot of little ghosts and goblins to watch out for, too. Exactly. And, you know, some there's a lot of trunk or treats. There's a lot of nighttime, you know, churches and schools are having nighttime events. So you're mixing, you know, a weekend of, you know, partying versus um, driving around where kids may be out doing certain things with their churches and schools. So you want to be, uh, you want to watch out. And, and we talk to the kids too. Uh, we, we go into the schools and we talk to the kids, especially when you're walking, walk with a group, walk with parents or a guardian, make sure that you have a flashlight, make sure you have reflectors. Also, you want to make sure that you don't wear your mask when you're crossing the street because that could be, you know, with your eyes, you may not be able to see. If you have any props with you, you know, a lot of, you know, kids like to have props with their uniform. You want to watch if you're running, running while you're crossing the street. You don't want to trip and fall, land on the prop and get hurt. So there's safety for both 
the little ones and their safety for the older ones. Thanks, Rebecca. Always those good safety tips from the Northeast Highway Safety Program. Up next, dental health and recognizing the signs of suicide on Special Edition. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Incidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as I... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island Jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Next on Special Edition, Delta Dental Insurance Company President Sarah Cheveria has the importance of older Americans taking care of their dental health. Sarah, welcome. Nice to have you here. We're going to talk about senior oral health. And of course, you know, if you have a great smile, you thank your dentist. So why aren't people going to the dentist? Well, our mouths are a gateway to our bodies and diseases that start in our teeth and gums, they can have a profound and significant impact on our overall health, our social well-being and quality of life. So that is a really great question. We surveyed Americans 50 and over across the U.S., and we did find that 72% wish they had taken better care in youth, yet many still aren't doing so. 80% are not going to the dentist as often as recommended, and that comes with regrets later in life. So it is important to take care of that oral health because it's closely linked, as you know, to overall health. And as we get older, we're more prone to dry mouth, tooth decay, and gum disease. So it's a great question. Well, along the same lines then, you know, we always think about children and taking them to the dentist and making sure that all the teeth are coming in correctly. And do you think that maybe once we get past the point of having our wisdom teeth extracted, that maybe we figure we're said and done, and a lot of people don't realize the correlation between oral health and regular general health? Our report identified that as one of the top three reasons that seniors are not going to the dentist. And you actually brought up two of them. One is that lack of understanding of that connection between oral health and overall health. And second is if their last visit was having wisdom teeth removed, then it's those negative emotions, right, that are associated with going to the dentist. And then the third finding was that it's that access to care. It's the time, the transportation, and their mobility to get to the dentist. And then think about our Hispanic and Latin communities. Think about our African and Black Americans. And that gap widens even more for their ability to get to the dentist. So what can we do? I mean, there are people out there who are maybe at this point in time looking into dentures because maybe they are not able to chew their food as well. So do we have to get to that point before we say, oh, it's been how many years? I guess we should go back now. (laughs) You know, we subscribe to the 212, right? So there are a lot of things you can do. Brush your teeth twice a day floss once a day, and yes, get to your dentist twice a year so that you can get that cleaning and you can get that checkup. And that checkup is so important, especially for seniors, because 
it might be one of the few times a year they get to someone who might see an indication of something that is, you know, an indicator of something with their overall health. And then there are things you can do at home, right? I'm over 50. We have to drink a lot of water. If we can, drink water with fluoride, get exercise, eat well. So eat those fruits and vegetables. And if you do have partials, if you have dentures, make sure you're removing and cleaning those every day. I think those are a few things that we can do to really get back into that rhythm of taking really good care of our oral health. And you mentioned going back to having wisdom teeth taken out. Again, I'm over 50 as well. I'm way over more 50 than you are, I'm sure. (laughs) And when we talk about that, Sarah, so many things have changed when you go to the dentist office now. It's not the same way that it was way back when. It's There's a lot more friendly. There's a lot more, well, it's just more user-friendly than it was. Absolutely. I think that dentists are well aware that people have some of these barriers and they're, they want to see patients, right? And so I think you're right. There, there's more access. It's easier to get in. You might have to wait a little bit outside, right? Because COVID changed a lot of things for how we go and visit our healthcare providers. But at the end of the day, I think dentistry has certainly come a long way. And Sometimes you can even avoid the drill and you can avoid some of those things with just all the advancements in dentistry. So I think people should try it out and see if they can overcome that fear. You know, two in five seniors say that they're smiling less than when they were younger. And that's due to that declining oral health and the appearance of their teeth. So definitely get out there, make that appointment and get that first checkup done before the year is out. And one of the things that many dentists are doing, I know mine does, is check for oral cancer. And that can also be a big, I think we have to get something done as you were talking about seeing things that may be going on elsewhere through the fact that we go to the dentist. Absolutely. Think about it. Most of us see a primary care physician once a year. And if we see that dentist twice a year, now we have three touch points with someone who can identify early indications of things that might be more serious or things that we really need to take care of. So I think you bring up a really, really great point there. Do you think cost also plays a factor? Because once we get to that age, we might not be able to get dental insurance or have dental insurance. That is a potential barrier. And that is where I think that if you're, um, you know, one of our Americans 50 and older, you know, look for an individual plan. We certainly at Delta Dental offer and make our business to provide that access to coverage that helps facilitate bringing that dentist experience to you and really minimizing that cost. So through Delta Dental and through um, other means, you can certainly find that access that, that you'll need to help, you know, manage that dental cost. And remember, preventative care is always less costly than if you wait until something is wrong. I was going to say, it may just turn out that you get the the dental insurance and find out that twice a year is all you're going to be doing because all you're going to need is cleaning at that point in time. Wouldn't that be really good news for people? (laughs) If you stay on top of it and you engage in healthy habits and you go and get those cleanings and you get that checkup, then you're doing that proactive preventative care, which is really I'm just staying in front of that. And I know that you did mention a few things, but can you again reiterate some of the things that people can do to improve their oral health? And of course, getting to the dentist is number one. (laughs) That's right. So people just remember the two, one, two. So brush twice daily, at least. Floss once. I know people do not like to floss. My husband doesn't like to floss, but do it anyway and then get to the dentist twice a year for that checkup and cleaning. 
don't wait until there's all an already an ouch. And then, you know, when you go in, ah, that might not be a good visit. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And then I mentioned the other things, right? Drink a lot of water, eat healthy, get some mobility, some exercise, and you're just going to feel better overall. And where can our listeners go to get more information? Please go to D-D-I-N-S dot C-O forward slash healthy aging. We put a lot of resources there, a lot of articles, a lot of access to information. You asked about, you know, getting coverage to minimize that cost. All of that information will be there for your listeners. And you mentioned the fact that people aren't smiling anymore. Well, get out there, get that done, smile and thank your dentist. (laughs) Yeah, 30% of our folks said that they are missing out on connecting with people because they're embarrassed to smile. So absolutely, let's get out there and fix that. And you have a great smile, Sarah. I can tell from here. (laughs) Well, I go to the dentist twice a year. I brush twice and I do floss. And I love my water picks. That's another thing I I was going to mention about the water pick, something new, something high tech that you can have in your house. It's a wonderful tool. I love it. Next, Dr. Doreen Marshall, Vice President of Mission Engagement, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, is here to talk about recognizing the signs. Dr. Marshall, thank you for being here. And when we talk about suicide, It is a very difficult subject to broach with anyone. And maybe you can begin by telling us how things have changed just since the pandemic about this topic. Well, AFSP does a public opinion poll every two years with uh, two partners. And one of the things we saw in this poll was that uh, eight out of 10 uh, U.S. adults believe that mental health and physical health are equally important. And nine out of 10 believe that suicide can be prevented. So this is very hopeful. Um, And these numbers are up. So it does tell us that since the pandemic, people are prioritizing their mental health much more than they were before. Along the, the same lines as prioritizing mental health, again, when we're talking about something such as this, however, it might be easier for someone to ask you if you have a medical problem rather than something that is mental health. Are you still finding that? Well, what we're finding is that even though people see mental health and physical health similar, they don't necessarily believe that the system treats them similarly. So I think what you're speaking to is really important. Um, But one of the encouraging findings in this report was that 80% of U.S. adults said they would tell someone if they themselves were having thoughts of suicide. And that's up from 67% in 2015. So again, we have a public that's really becoming not only um, more aware, but really more willing and more comfortable talking about their mental health distress and suicide. And there you go. Because again, somebody may hear something, they may think that there's something going on. So while you're here, Dr. Marshall, maybe you can give our listeners some advice, some suggestions as how to make that discussion begin without having someone say, oh, no, that's not what I meant. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that, you know, people do need to educate themselves about warning signs. So how do you even know when someone may be struggling? And you can learn more about that um, through our organization, AFSP, uh, by going to our website, AFSP.org. But I think to your question, um, you know, I think it's important not to wait. If you're seeing a change in behavior for someone and they're seeming very hopeless or they're talking in a way that make this sound like they don't see a future. So approach them and just say, hey, I noticed you seem to be different or things seem to be different for you. And sometimes when people have a lot of stress in their life, they may have thoughts of suicide. I wonder if you're having those kinds of thoughts. So not be afraid to ask directly because it gives them the opportunity for you to hear what's going on with the person, but also to help connect them to help. Again, I think that it is a wonderful thing to be able to do that. But again, so many people are concerned. What if they tell me yes? 
then what do I do? Well, and that's why it's really important to know the resources that are out there. Um, There's a national number, 988, which is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline that you can call from anywhere in the country that will connect you to a live trained person. Um, There's other resources. Um, You know, the results of this poll that we did and also some resources for organizations working in this area can be found at suicidepreventionnow.org. But I think you're right. And I think that the most important thing really is to listen, to reassure the person, and then help connect them to one of these resources that are available. One of the things that we have heard so many times, oh, it'll pass. Oh, it'll you'll get over it. Oh, buck up. Everything will be fine tomorrow. It's just a small phase. Dr. Marshall, I'm wondering, are people still in that mindset? And if they are, how do you change that? Well, I think this is where education is really important and learning about suicide. You know, most of the adults we surveyed said they wanted to and would help someone, but only one in three really felt they could identify a warning sign or really know what to do. So, you know, I think that's where learning more becomes important. Um, Learning about suicide helps to demystify it. Um, But I think the other piece here is that, you know, we, everyone has a role to play in suicide prevention. And so we do need to see this as something that needs our attention and needs our support. When we're talking again about the warning signs, there are, as you mentioned, some that you have told us about. Are there others that we might be able to, that we might not even think of as a possible, hmm, maybe I should ask a question? So we look for changes in the way a person's talking, the way they're behaving, or their mood. So some of the ones that may be a little different for folks to acknowledge are someone who's isolating or not doing things they would normally enjoy. They might be using substances more to cope. Um, Their mood might be sad, but they might also be angry or agitated. I think a lot of times we think about sad or depressed mood, but we don't think about someone who's really angry or who's feeling really agitated. And those can also be kind of warning signs that the person may be thinking about suicide. And again, when we're talking about things like that, is it wise? to say, to jump right into the idea of suicide, or maybe it is just there's something going on that I can help you with? Well, we have no evidence that asking about suicide is going to create any um, worse situation for the person. In fact, what's more likely to happen is that if you ask about suicide and the person is feeling suicidal, they will see, okay, someone sees my pain. They see the, the desperation I'm feeling. Um, so, you know, we want to encourage the public to not be afraid to ask directly. And if, if, you're, if the person responds in a way that's unsure, to not be afraid to, to go back to ask again at a later point or to let them know that you're someone they could talk to if they do feel that way. Are you also finding that the people who are going out and no matter whether it's whether it's this far or whether it's just something that, you know, since you you said since the pandemic has started, a lot of people thinking that they are going to get more help from mental health professionals, because again, that used to be a very big stigma. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we did see in this um, poll that more adults were doing something to cope or support their own mental health. And, and more felt comfortable. In fact, um, nearly three out of four said they would feel comfortable contacting a crisis line. So, you know, I do think people are reaching out more, um, but they also acknowledge that there's some barriers and that some of the barriers around cost and accessibility do still exist. So this is where there's a real opportunity for advocacy and, and for getting involved to Make sure everyone is um, having mental health and suicide prevention be a priority. And Dr. Marshall, before I have to let you go, are there any things that you would like to make sure our listeners know before um, they encounter this kind of a situation? Well, I think it's important to know that when someone is having thoughts of suicide, that, that it's an expression of emotional pain, that they are in pain. Um, and that that the intensity of that does for many people. So if we can help people get through those difficult moments, 
um, there's a pretty good chance that they will not die by suicide. And that's why it's important to reach out if it's you struggling or if you know of someone who's struggling to not wait um, to take that extra step and connect with them. And if you can, one more time, the information is or the information about finding out more information, including your American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So you can go to our website at ASSP.org to connect with one of our chapters. We have all chapters in all 50 states. And to learn more about these resources and others, you can go to suicidepreventionnow.org. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this... Why? A lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.